and I took a class at Gotham Writers Workshop on fiction, wrote a short story. My teacher said, I think you have talent. And I always love to stop at this moment and do a shout out for teachers because I did not know that. And she really changed my life. You're listening to Your Jewish Life Your Way with Karen Cinnamon, the podcast that explores what it feels like to be Jewish or Jewish in 2023. On the show, we divulge all of the secrets and know-how to being confident in celebrating and living your Jewish life your way with easy, simple ways to embrace your mishpacha through the traditions and rituals you've been dying to learn more about. So save your kvetching. We're talking less Jewish guilt and more Jewish joy here on out. Yalla, forget about the right and wrong ways to be Jewish. It's time to create a Jewish life you love living. Welcome to today's episode of the Your Jewish Life Your Show with me, Karen Cinnamon, your hostess. I am so happy to have you with me here today, as I am for every episode. It's such a joy to create these episodes and have ongoing conversations. And one of the goals of the podcast is to bring in a diverse range of Jewish voices. We are a diverse community. We are not just one thing. And that's One of my goals with the podcast, which I'm sure if you look through the back catalogue, you can hopefully see how many different voices we've featured so far. I do like to do interviews on this podcast to bring in other voices to show the diversity of our community. And today I thought it would be fun to take a look inside the Syrian Jewish community. I'm not sure if you know much about it. It's a really fascinating look at the Syrian Jewish community today. And my guest is Corey Ajmi, who has written a book called The Marriage Box, which draws on her own experiences moving from a reform upbringing in New Orleans to a traditional Orthodox Syrian life in Brooklyn as a teenager. And with this book along the way, it shines a spotlight on the close-knit Jewish community. The Syrian community can seem mysterious to outsiders, and that's why I thought it would be great to peel back the layers and talk to Corrie about what it's like and also about how she transitioned from that reform upbringing in New Orleans to that traditional Orthodox Syrian life in Brooklyn as a teenager. The other thing I love about Corrie is she shares how she got started writing in her 30s. It's never too late to sort of make your dreams come true, to follow your heart, to do what lights you up. And we touch upon that in today's episode as well. Another thing we talked about that is so close to my heart is why family is at the heart of her Judaism. It's so often with being Jewish, you know, people can think it's about the religious aspects, keeping kosher, following the Talmud and all that. But for me, it's so much more about the values of Judaism with family, mishpacha being one of my most important values, as well as joy and kindness and empathy and compassion and community. But Corey very much focuses on family. We talked about that today. So have a listen, enjoy the show, and I will see you next time. So welcome to the podcast, Corey. I'm really excited to have you here with me today because one of the goals of the podcast is to listen and hear from more diverse Jewish voices. Now, you're in Brooklyn in New York, you know, it's not like I'm speaking to you from some minor, tiny community that we really need to hear from. But your history, your childhood, your adulthood, your book, it's all very much focused on the Syrian Jewish community, which I think a lot of us have maybe heard about, but maybe you think it's a bit mysterious, don't really know too much about some people listening 
may not even have heard about it. So I'm looking forward to unraveling it a bit and getting to know you and welcome. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, so I want to get into your new book, The Marriage Box. It, first of all, it's so great to see a Jewish theme and, in, in, you know, a modern chiclet or or whatever what terminology would you use to describe it is it chiclet <laughs> well it is an easy read it's a fun read great Definitely. cover as well love the cover thank design. you great for summertime great for the beach that's yeah. for sure covering some happy themes in there as well for sure yeah yeah so let's start right at the beginning which I often like to do with my guests because as Elisa what's her name? The Jewish matchmaker, her surname's escaped me, Ben something. Oh my God, I'm going to kick myself. She said the Jewish matchmaker on Netflix, which I love this. There are 15 million Jews on the planet and 50 million ways to be Jewish. So that's why I like to really yeah. understand my guests because, you know, the diversity and individuality of all of us. So how did Judaism play a role in your life growing up? Let's start right at the beginning. Tell, tell me where you grew up and how Judaism played a role. Sure. So I grew up in New Orleans. And we lived a reformed lifestyle. So we didn't keep kosher. We didn't observe the Sabbath. Um, I did go to Sunday school every Sunday. So Jewish identity was very much a part of the upbringing. But I didn't know much about the rules and the regulations. And it wasn't until my family decided when I was 16 to move back to Brooklyn. Both my parents were born and raised in Brooklyn. That's when I learned about, first of all, Orthodox Judaism, but also my Syrian background. I didn't so wait, just pause a minute. You weren't really aware of your Syrian background or you were, but none of the traditions or up until that point, what was the status quo? Oh, I wasn't that aware. My parents had largely left that part of their life behind. We ate some of the foods. There were a couple of words here and there, Arabic words, but really not a big emphasis on that part of our history at all. That's interesting. That's yeah. Interesting. I always say I have one grandmother who was Ashkenaz and one grandmother who was Syrian. And my Syrian grandmother had passed away before I was born. And I do believe that if she had been alive, she would have shown me the foods and how to prepare them and she would have probably talked to me in a different way than what ended up happening, you know, removed in New Orleans without Interesting. her. Yeah. So yeah. my my mother was born in Iraq, moved to Israel in 48 as a child, but the Iraqi traditions and food and way of life was, you know, very present and part of, you know, so I find it very interesting that it was not erased, but not part of your identity as a child even though one of your parents did it was did my you... mom's mom was actually oh, but your so is it on your dad's side the Syrian? it was my dad's side yes okay okay and was he was he part of the syrian community as a child or yes both my yes. parents were because my mother's father was also syrian so three of my grandparents were from right. a right okay so you moved to Brooklyn. What age were you? Oh, I was 16. <laughs> okay. And what were you expecting from life in Brooklyn at 16? Well, I wasn't expecting too much because, like I said, I was pretty much unaware of uh, what was ahead of me. But what happened was I had gone from being in a college preparatory school in New Orleans and thinking I was going to go to college to my parents now wanting me to get married. And it was... At 16? At 18. By 18. 
So they but, they were telling you this is happening, you're going to get married. And that was not the narrative growing up in New Orleans. No, 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 no. And I was shocked. And I said, there is no way that's never going to happen. And it did. What I age? Did. I got married at 18. So tell us, tell <laughs> us the story. <laughs> well, I didn't, I said I wasn't going to do it. But then I met my husband and we were, somebody set us up. We were a blind date and we fell in love. And I made the choice to get married. And, and how, how did the Syrian community play a part in that? Or did you meet him outside of the community? No, he's Syrian too. So his brother was dating my cousin and they set us up and everyone was very happy. <laughs> so you fell in love and married for the right reasons. You didn't feel pressured. Is that is that right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so then what happened? <laughs> then it's now many, many, many years later, we're still together. Do you incorporate Syrian tradition into your lifestyles? Definitely. Uh, raising yeah. your children, yeah. Yes, we, we live within the Syrian community here in New York City and Brooklyn, and we do follow many of the traditions. I cook a lot. I cook every Friday night. We have a very big Shabbat dinner and Shabbat lunch. I actually love cooking, so that works out. And what are, the, what are you know, because a lot of people have heard of the Syrian community in New York, what are some of the things associated with the Syrian community as it stands in 2023? Well, I think the community really values family. That's, I think, pretty much number one. So getting married, having children is highly valued. Hard work is definitely a part of the community today for both men and women. And yeah, I would say, you know, there, we're, we're, this is a warm, generous community. And it's in many ways like the community depicted in the marriage box, but in many ways it's changed. Is it very insular? Because I think from the outside, that's what it's perceived to be. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, I do think that's changing too as time goes on. I think maybe a lot of the reasons that community members were insular in the beginning might have been fear or protecting themselves. But as time goes on, and as the generations assimilate, things change. And so what, what, why is there this sort of perception about the Syrian community? Why isn't it more assimilated in, in New York? I mean, why do you think there is that sort of closed off feeling? Is it because it's small or? Oh, I don't know. I think we're kind of big now. Yeah, yeah. We've heard 75,000, something wow, like that. Wow, that's, that's yeah. big, yeah. So it is changing. I don't know that it's so interesting insular anymore and I don't know like how other people might perceive the community but I I suppose I'm saying is there a lot of intermarriage between outside the Syrian Jewish community to make it more you know do um, they marry outside or is it still very much we'd like you to marry someone inside the community and is marriage still such a focus like it was for your parents I think yes to both I think marriage is still a very big focus and I think the preference is you'll, ma- and this might just be like, you know, falling back on old ways, but to marry inside the, the community is, I think, the easy answer. It's the easy answer, but it's difficult in today's world to keep, you know, New York kids inside a tiny community. How is that? What, what does that look like? You know, do people just say, I'm out of here or do I want, you know, what? And do, do the parents understand that when they say, actually, I've, I've got a lovely partner, but they're not Jewish or they're Jewish, but they're not from the community. You know, what, what are those conversations 
Obviously, you're think, generalizing, but what, what are they? Sort yes, of I am generalizing. And I can only speak from what I know in my own yes. experience. But historically, I think it's been mostly that if somebody wanted to choose to live differently, they would leave the community. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And is it is it? I'd love I'd love to know also. You said you you know you were brought up in a reform community in New Orleans, to an Orthodox Syrian community in Brooklyn, like the main character Casey in the Marriage yeah. Box. <laughs> what was that like for you? Talk to us about that that transition. Oh, shocking. <laughs> yes. Yeah, shocking. Um, it was a difficult transition. I think largely because I was unprepared, um, but also because it was just such a vast difference. I mean, it was one extreme to another. And so, yeah, it was shocking. And in the marriage box, you know, I play on that, that sometimes the moments of figuring out the world around me were painful. And sometimes they were kind of funny. So it depends on your perspective and your point of view at the time. But when we moved, I was very sad. I mean, there was the whole part of like leaving my friends behind and leaving uh, the school I had gone to. and, And some of the dreams that I even had were being questioned. So it was a really difficult year, my first year. Yeah, my parents were not thrilled. You know, I was a teenager and I was angry and sad. And yeah, it was a difficult transition for sure. And did you have siblings kind of alongside you feeling the same things? I have one sibling who's three years younger. So he was just starting high school. So that was a little easier, I think, to transition in ninth grade. I was changing in um, 11th grade which is not ideal at the time mm. when you're first trying to figure out who you are. And now it felt to me like the rug was pulled out from under me. Yeah. Um, and I have, a, I have a sister who's much younger, so she was only two. So wow, right. yeah, she grew up in the community. She didn't have experience what yeah. I experienced at all. And do, do you all, did you all, did they follow suit like you? Did they marry Syrian partners and children? And really? They did, yeah. <laughs> Well, you guys are doing something right, because I think all the Jewish communities would like to say that all their children are still within the, what is it, what, what is the magnetism, what is the thing that is, that you feel is special about the community that, that you and your siblings, you know, because I don't think at this age, I'm talking to you, you're now a grandma, do you feel forced into a way of life? This is your chosen way of life. Absolutely. Um, I do think there is something beautiful about community life 100 percent, family life a sense of belonging I also have turned out to be more traditional than I once thought I was so like I said cooking and being around family feels very comfortable for me in doing a lot of these conversations people have come on zooms that I've done where they have left the community and then they showed up on a Zoom to talk and some of them have said things like it was too claustrophobic for me, I had to leave. Another one, um, a gentleman said just he he cared to pursue an education and become a teacher and he felt very not like the other Syrian boys, so he left. People do leave, but sometimes they have regrets because they miss that community life and that sense of being a part of something. But these two people, while they said they might have momentary regrets overall, they needed to do, they needed to leave. They needed to live differently. And, and I think the thing that sort of stuns me, and I wonder if it's changed since the eighties is community is a wonderful thing, but also 
within that to be able to explore your own identity as an individual. And it's that pressure that you talked about, you're going to get married at 17 or 18 if you're a girl. Is it still common or has that changed since the 80s? Well, I I mean, I think it's changed a little bit, but fundamentally, that's what the marriage box is about. I wanted to write this because the question for me was, like, how do you balance or do you balance or integrate your own individual desires with the culture's expectations or a family's expectations of you? You know, how much and on some people, for some people, that might be a really big challenge. And for other people, they just know what they need to do whether it's follow the community's ways or follow their own path. But that's what my protagonist, Casey, struggles with in the book. That's it, because I think, looking back to when I was 17 or 18, you know, you're living in the family home. And if my parents are telling me to do something, I think particularly at that age, you're like, no, I want to find out who I am. And then it's quite common, you know, 10 years later, like, actually, maybe I'm ready for this now, whatever. But I feel like that's an age where... Although I grew up in a loving Jewish home with Jewish values and all the good stuff, I didn't want to do what my parents were telling me to do at 17 or 18. What what 17 or 18-year-olds do because you're finally working things out and realizing you have a voice outside of the family home. So how does that work? What not there a thinking that in the community that maybe we should give them until their mid-20s to get married, to develop as, a, as an individual? It's still 17, 18, right? I think that's changed. I think yes. it's, I mean, there are 18-year-olds getting married, that's for yes. sure. Yes. But overall, the kids are getting married. I shouldn't even call them kids. But, you know, in your 20s, you're still a kid, I guess. They're, yeah. they're getting married later. I'd say it's more like mid-20s, yeah. late-20s. It, it has changed, definitely. So would you say that college is now in, encouraged rather than discouraged in that case? Yes. Because yes. that's a that's, big difference. That's a big difference. A very big difference. It's definitely encouraged. I am so excited to invite you to download the app, the number one app, I should say, for Jewish women that I founded and created. It's called Smashing Life. You'll find it on the App Store or Google Play right now. It is the place to be if you're a Jewish woman in 23. It's that simple. It's a place to ask for life advice from people who are a bit more removed from situations than maybe your immediate close group of friends. It's a place to ask questions, get immediate answers, Jewish recipes, inspiration, or just simply scrolling through the app, seeing what Jewish women around the world are all going through, similar and different experiences. In a time when anti-Semitism is being concealed less and less, it's so comforting to know that we have each other. It's a safe, private space where you belong. Most importantly, there's no labels, there's no judgment. It's just authentic connection, a place to express yourself freely, make new Jewish friends and have fun. So download Smashing Life. You'll find it on the App Store or on Google Play and come join us. I will see you in there. So let's talk about the writing process in your book, because one thing I found really fascinating is you didn't start writing until your late 30s. What inspired that switch? (laughs) So I was a teacher. I taught fourth and fifth grade, and I was working on my graduate degree, and I took a class on storytelling, and then eventually did my thesis on storytelling. So I was pregnant with my fifth child. I was 34 years old, finishing up my graduate degree. And after I finished working on my thesis on storytelling, I wanted to keep telling stories. 
And so I happened to be, you know, just, I had a newborn at home by then and I was nursing. So I needed to be home and kind of was a natural progression. I took a class class at Gotham Writers Workshop on fiction, wrote a short story. My teacher said, I think you have talent. And I always love to stop at this moment and do a shout out for teachers because I did not know that. And she really changed my life. She totally, I've been trying to find her since. I can't find her. Let's put a shout out for her. Maybe someone listening can try. Her name is Julie Regan. And I acknowledged her when my first book came out and I just haven't been able to find her, but I, I would love to be able to thank her because she said, I think you have talent. I think you should go to Breadloaf. And I didn't know what that was. It's a prestigious writing conference. I applied, I got in, I went, and that was the beginning. That was, I worked she on She gave you that belief in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I had no idea. I never wanted to be a writer. Well, I never thought I could be a writer. So it was um, baby steps and she was definitely a spark. So what advice would you give to others in this that situation of sort of midlife-ish, not quite midlife, but, you know, switching things up? Yeah, I'd say you have to listen to yourself, mm. like just wherever the calling is. I mean, I look back now and I really, I'm not sure why I took that class at Gotham. I, I just, it was almost like- Because you, you thought you were going back to your teaching career after your fifth, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought I'd go back to teaching. I mean, I, I, I did not expect a whole career change. I thought I'd be in education forever. I, I mean, and I still, you know, try to stay like my my charity work, my free time, I try to do some teaching, but I, I had no idea I was going to end up being a writer. So what was the process of writing? I, um, so you, you decided you were going to pursue to be a writer, but that doesn't necessarily look like a novelist and a published no, author. So no. what was that process? So it was a slow process and baby steps for sure. So the first thing was I did work on a short story at Breadloaf, submitted, and it got published. And even after that, I was like, okay, so I got one short story published. It doesn't mean I'll ever get another one published. Maybe that was just a lucky break. And then I tried for a second one. And even I can remember when I was submitting my third and fourth, I I wasn't sure I was a writer still. I wasn't sure I would keep writing and keep getting published. It wasn't until I probably had like six stories published that I started to think, I think I'm doing this. (laughs) (laughs) How many years later was that then? Still Um, in your 30s? Probably. Yeah. Probably. You know, early 40s maybe. Um, And then one day I had the idea to link the short stories and write some new ones to make the collection make sense. And that's how I got Life and Other Shortcomings, which was my first book, my collection of stories. I think I was really inspired to do that by Jennifer Egan's book, A Visit from the Goon Squad, and by Olive Kitteridge, Elizabeth Strout. Both of those books are told like in stories. It just was an inspiration for me. And and then Life and Other Shortcomings was born. And then after that, I was starting to take myself more seriously. And The Marriage Box is a novel that I had started a long time ago and just kept coming back to now and then because it's hard when you're raising young children to find the time to focus on a 300 page manuscript 
yeah. stores were much easier for me. But once my kids were, you know, pretty much on their own, I was able to find more time. And then I was able to focus on the marriage box. And now it's uh-huh. also in the world. How did it, but did your perspective, so it is fair to say that it's semi-autobiographical? The marriage box, the premise is based on my real life, for sure. The parts that I told you, coming from New Orleans to New York, from reform community to an Orthodox community, but all the details, what the characters do, are, are fiction. It's made up. And that also is what took a really long time, because for so many years, I was protecting my characters. What do you mean protecting them? Well, I wouldn't let the mother character, you know, be less than wonderful because I was afraid people would think it was my mother. Uh Or even make the character based on me do things that were, you know, questionable because, you know, it's difficult to do. But one day I I was just like, okay, the character that's based on me just has to do something I could never do. And that was the beginning. That's liberating stuff. It was, because then it was really fun. Like, then I could just make all the characters have fun on the page. So would you say that just came as a result of age and not fearing judgment or what anyone else has to say? Or what was what led you to that point? Because I think we'd all, we'd all like to feel like that sooner rather than later. <laughs> right. Well, I think when I was protecting my characters and they were more like the people they were taken from, It was almost scarier. It's once I decided to make them do and do outrageous things that it was obvious that these things never happened, that they couldn't have happened, that it was just liberating. It was more liberating. I find it was the light bulb that made you realize that, that you could just take them off, make them do something crazy. Yeah. One day I just woke up and I knew what my character had to do. And it's something I could never do. And I never did. And, and really that was it. Wow. And what's next for you? Have you got a, have you got a sequel in mind? You know, it seems like you've always got something bubbling. (laughs) Yes. Well, I actually do have a first draft of another novel written. Uh Uh And that my marching orders for that book was it has to have nothing to do with my real life. Yes. So that was really fun to write. And actually, since the marriage box came out, a bunch of people had said, what about a sequel? So Ah. at the beginning, I was like, what? No. And then I've been thinking about it. I can't get the idea out of my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. We'll see. (laughs) We'll we'll link to um, the book in the show notes. Well worth a read. Perfect for the summer. Or whenever you just, you know, there's such a lack of good fiction with a Jewish theme with characters that are part of our wonderful community and um, highly recommend it and excited for a sequel as well if that's on the cards so all things said with your wonderful you know Jewish life from childhood to teens to adulthood and all these things that you've been through and what you've done with it all what does your Jewish life your way mean to you Corey? I I think Caring about our world and other people is extremely important to me. Um, Doing good, being a good citizen in general, but a Jewish citizen, feeling proud of who we are as a people, and um, just being part of that beautiful narrative. Mm. 
And and what brings you Jewish joy? What what are the joyful aspects of your? I suppose it's all the things you mentioned: the giving. Yes, the, but also I have to say, family life really yeah. um, is extremely important to me. It, yeah, uh, a big part of my week. A lot of my time is devoted to. It was when my children were little, and now that they're grown, it's still a very important part of my life. Yeah, and and I can relate to that. It underpins everything we value in the community you know that emphasis on family the emphasis on togetherness and it's just uh, yeah for me it's the heart of my my Judaism as well and and the door for door the things that I've carried you know from my mother sadly died just over a year ago and I only since she's died I realized what she's passed on to me and given to me you're not so aware when they're still in the world and what I'm doing for my daughters and the family life we're creating and it's everything, as you say, it's everything. <laughs> so I'm going to dive into some fun, quick fire questions, which I like to do with all of my guests. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to get you to expose any more than you exposed in the book. <laughs> okay. So let's dive in, let's dive in. So what's your favorite Syrian word? <laughs> Question. Inshallah. Yeah. Inshallah, which means please God, right? Mm-hmm. So I know that from my from my Iraqi background. <laughs> Favorite Jewish holiday? Favorite Jewish holiday? Hanukkah. Why is that? I had great memories from childhood. Eight presents, one every night. Really? <laughs> and the candles. I love candles. Yeah, and you still yeah. do Hanukkah parties for mm-hmm. your family. Yeah, it's it's sure. so joyful. Um, favorite Syrian food that you make? Spiha, which is ground meat and rice as a filling yes. around grilled eggplant. Oh, it's good. And is rice like I'm obsessed with rice? My mother made me rice. Is it is that a big Syrian uh, staple as well? Uh, every Friday night. Yeah, sure. <laughs> really, really uh, good rice. Yeah, I think I know the answer to this one because of what you mentioned right in the beginning. Don't even need to ask it, but I will. Home cooked, elaborate Shabbat dinner, or Chinese takeout Shabbat? <laughs> oh, definitely home. Uh, right? <laughs> Have you ever even done anything but an elaborate Shabbat dinner on Shabbat? Do you ever? Uh-huh. When you're a young mom, weren't you just like, I can't, I could just, I haven't got the energy. We're just throwing something on the table today. You know what? I I don't know if it would be different if I didn't care about food and eating, but I really do appreciate a good meal. And I like to cook. So there was really no excuse. And I can do it pretty fast, too. Exactly. It wasn't an energy sucker for you when you didn't have energy. No. It energized you. I know how to throw everything in a pot. Like So we need to hear, like, give me a Friday night hack. You know, busy women, but we want to put a beautiful meal on the table. Quick. Go on. Okay. Share something. Sure. I mean, you can throw a chicken in a pot or, you know, chicken pieces or whatever. And onions, potatoes, carrots. Spice it up, salt, pepper. I, I mix it up. Could be herbs like thyme or whatever, or it could be um, coriander and turmeric, and you know, just go a different route or allspice. Sometimes I use. I we use yes. a lot of allspice. Yes, I like allspice on salmon and fish. Yeah. yeah. And the trick: olive oil and salt. Any spices comes out delicious. Just in the oven. Just in the oven. I don't make a big deal out of things, really. And I think that I, my belief is the simpler, the better. And do you come up with your own recipes? Is there a favorite recipe book you want to share that you love? 
I, I haven't used a recipe book in a long time. Well, by now, but when you were yes. when you were I, a busy mom, working the, mom, there there was it's I don't even know if they still make it anymore, but it was a a Syrian cookbook. It used to be uh, published in a red binder, <laughs> and it was the Bible back in the beginning. <laughs> but <laughs> now I don't use cookbooks, so wow. I can't recommend one. Oh. And there may or may not be an answer to this, but I want to ask it. What's something people seem to misunderstand about the Syrian Jewish community? Or do you think there isn't? Do you think people get it? I don't, I really, it's a really good question. And you asked me something else earlier that made me wonder about this. And I think I'm going to pay better attention. I don't know that I have the answer. I don't know what people think. Because I think what they might have thought 20 or 30 years ago is different than what they might think today. For two reasons. One, we definitely have changed, but also we are more visible. And because we're more visible, I think when you know somebody, you are not as quick to judge or come up with stereotypes or or generalizations. Mm. And so I think that's changed things a bit. And so the answer is, I don't know what people think today. Yeah. But I do think it's probably different than it was 20 years ago. Mm. I'm sure you'll find out through responses to the book and, you know, what people may say, oh, I didn't know it was like this, or I thought it was like that. I definitely have heard a lot of, thank you for introducing me to this community that I didn't know about. Yeah. It's a beautiful community. So finally, question I ask all my guests, if you could have Friday night dinner, Shabbat dinner with any three Jewish people dead or alive, you can take your pick. Who would it be and why? Well, I'm just going to tell you who came to mind first was Golda Meir. Yes. Uh, inspiration, brilliance, integrity, vision. Nathan Englander, I don't know if I've just been a fan of his writing. He's funny. He's I actually heard him uh, speak one time too. So that might be fun. And one more. I don't know. I'm thinking someone funny might be nice. Amy Schumer, is that, is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great mix. That is a great, can I come too? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. Well, Corey, today has been great. I really recommend the book Marriage Box. Um, Go check it out, link to it in the show notes. And yeah, I think, I think I love these conversations about being Jewish and Although we have the same values, the same focus, we are we do have different communities within our wider Jewish community. And that's what I love spotlighting on this podcast. And it's been so fun today to understand more about you and the Syrian community and your book. And yeah, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. I loved this conversation so much, really. Thank you. If this episode inspired you in some way, I'd love you to take a screenshot of you listening on your device and post it to your Instagram stories and tag me at Your Jewish Life. I'd love to connect with you on Instagram and be your Instagram friend. That'd be fun. And I'd also love you to subscribe and share the episode with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I'd love you to leave a review as well. All these ways make sure that more people get to listen to the podcast and get inspired to live their Jewish life their way and we can spread the Jewish joy. So that would be a lovely mitzvah if you wanted to leave a review or share this episode with a friend or subscribe. 
One more thing I want to tell you about just before I go today is I've got a really great handy checklist for you if you are trying to build a Jewish home or you've got a home and you want to make it more Jewish or you just want to feel more Jewish at home. It is a free checklist for everything you need in a modern Jewish home, literally covering everything you need to set up your modern Jewish home. And if you've got a lot of these things, it's just a great reminder. There's links to everything you need as well. So it's, it's really handy in that way too. There's checklists for Rosh Hashanah, Shabbat, Hanukkah, Passover, and lots of minor Jewish holidays as well. And all sorts of fun ideas for the items too. So just head to yourjewishlife.co slash jewishhome if you want to grab that checklist. That's yourjewishlife.co, that's .co slash jewishhome, all one word. The checklist is for you, whether you're Jewish, Jewish, or becoming Jewish. Let me know what you think. Drop me a line on Instagram and have a great day.